This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who is going to walk right out of the studio now if you don't give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Last Friday was the one-year anniversary of the Google walkout, in which 20,000 employees and contractors protested the company's handling of a range of issues. And today on Recode Decode, we're talking about that protest and everything that has happened in the past year. In the first part of the show, I'll be talking to Recode's Shireen Ghaffari about what's been happening at Google and other companies since the walkout. After that, we'll hear from the organizers of the 2018 walkout about why most of them have since left Google. And then to close out today's show, we'll focus on a very big ongoing issue in tech right now, which is the use of contractors who don't have the same rights and benefits as employees. But first, let's hear from Shireen Ghaffari. Shireen, how are you doing? Pretty good, thank you. So you've been covering this. You've been writing a lot about tech and activism and labor. So let's focus first on the Google walkout. After it was done, did Google employees uh, get the changes they were asking for? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, they got their first major demand, which was to end forced arbitration. So that means that Google employees can now take their employer to court if, let's say, you're a Google worker and you're sexually harassed by your manager on the job. Before, Mm -hmm. you didn't necessarily have that right. A lot of people waived it when they signed up to work there. Mm-hmm. And so they have that, but other things. What did they get? Some of the systemic issues that led up to the walkout, things like pay inequality, things like fear of retaliation by your managers if you do report something. A lot of my sources and people I talk to say that still exists. And the contractor issue. And the contractor issue. So over half of Google's workforce are TVCs, which means they're temporaries, vendors, and contractors. Oh, Jesus. And That's their name? Yeah, they've been called the shadow workforce. Mm-hmm. These workers often don't get paid as much as their full-time employees and who they work side-by-side with, sometimes doing very similar work. And they also don't get all the great benefits and perks that Google employees are famous for. So like the food and the right. dry cleaning and the haircutting and things like that. They're like Dobbies, you know, from Harry <laughs> Potter. They are. They, they just do whatever they want. They have no rights. And it's a big issue in California right now around labor, uh, AB5 and uh, with Uber and things like that. So talk about retaliation because that's one of the issues is that a lot of the people who are organized the walkout of left the company. Right. So several of the Google walkout organizers 
said that they face retaliation. Um, two of them, have, you know, Meredith Whitaker and Clary Stapleton, have have talked about that, and many many others who aren't weren't actually organizing the walkout, but were political, you know, politically active at the company and were vocal uh, about issues. They say that. When you speak up, things get tough. You know, right. all of a sudden you may get a negative performance review or you may not get that promotion that you, you know, were hoping for. So, yes, a lot of people so, do feel— So these companies only like activism for so long and then they sort of are like, we're providing you with beautiful things. Why are you complaining? Right. So there's been a growing uh, tech employee activism in the past year, though, and most recently Amazon Climate Change and Uber drivers, Rideshare Drivers United, uh, who we might have in the podcast at some point. Did the Google walkout prompt this? That is a huge topic right now, and not everyone agrees. So some workers think that the best way is to keep kind of organically forming, um, you know, grassroots activist movements and coming up with demands kind of one by one. Other people think that we they need a union to have an organized effort to be able to go head to head with management on some of these issues. So we are seeing the beginnings of labor, of a real union forming potentially with Uber drivers. And, and one of the things they do allow these workers to talk on these meme boards and everything else. So they sort of do a, a sort of letting out the air a lot of times and making people feel like they're in control when they don't actually have rights. They're at-will employees. Right. Google is famous, I mean, notorious for this culture where people are sitting there and making memes, poking fun at their bosses openly, right, mm-hmm. and, and joking with each other about what was just said at the all-hands 10 minutes ago. And, mm-hmm. and they are very permissive of that in some ways, much more than you would mm-hmm. expect at a normal company. However, I think you're right that there are some limitations. And Google, in recent months, we've reported on this, has clarified that, hey, you're not allowed to talk about certain things like politics to an extent in the workplace. What about retaliation? So after the walkout, dozens of employees have come to us and told us that they are still facing issues with speaking up um, and that if they do report something like sexual harassment in some cases, they feel like they can be punished for it. So there are still some systemic issues the company needs to work out around power and really making sure the people who blow the whistle aren't being punished for it. Or maybe it's not as nice a management as it presents itself. Perhaps. maybe I don't know. That's just a guess. What's the most interesting thing you've learned covering this beat this year about labor and activism? I'm from Silicon Valley, and I think the interesting thing that I've learned is that the stereotype is not true, that tech workers don't care about politics or tech workers don't care about their working conditions or they don't care about the plight of people who are less fortunate than them. I've seen a lot of um, people become really enlightened on these topics and because of things like the Google Walkout, become inspired to start forming more bonds with their coworkers, to ask the cafeteria worker where they eat free lunch every day, hey, are you getting paid enough? Do you have health care? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're starting to see a real move movement form around class and gender and pay and working conditions. And that's pretty new for Silicon Valley, at least to publicly have people talking about this in a workplace where you're supposed to be in the best, most happy, shiny, bright place in mm-hmm. the world. So I think this this movement has proven me wrong in that, you know, the techies that I grew up with, they're not all robots. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is great. Trin, you're doing an amazing job. And where can people follow your reporting on these topics and you yourself? Vox.com, Recode.net. Check it out. You can follow us there. And Shireen, on Twitter, where do and you? Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my name, Shireen Ghaffari, which is not easy to spell, so. <laughs> well, spell it for us then. Uh, well, just Google S-H-I-R-I-N, Shireen Vox, and you will find me. All right, fantastic. Keep up the great work, Shireen. Next up, we're going to hear from most of the organizers of the 2018 Google Walkout. One of them is now my executive producer, Erica Anderson, who left Google in February. She recently spoke to fellow organizer, Stephanie Parker, who still at Google. 
Stephanie, thank you for joining me. Now, unlike the other organizers of the walkout, you are still at Google. How's that going? Things have been going great. We're not doing a a walkout every week, but we are gaining strength and moving things forward. Importantly, I want to emphasize that while I did participate and have a hand in a lot of these things, um, they're driven mostly by completely new faces, right? Post-walkout, everyone's eyes are open and everyone has been inspired to take action on the issue that they care about and to show support to all the other actions and and campaigns. It's really um, an exciting time to be in Google. Just this past week, I don't know if you heard, but some employees in Zurich put on an event where they invited a union rep to come into the office and speak to the employees about their labor rights. And and this is actually a legal right that Swiss workers have, is that you can have a, a union rep in the office talk to you. Google site management responded saying, no, this talk is canceled. And they even hopped onto the video call as the the event was live streamed and said, this talk is canceled. But they went ahead with it anyway. Hmm. Zurich employees did not back down, you know, and this kind of exchange is super powerful. They just went on anyway. And the the HR people had to just drop off. There was nothing they could do in the face of this confident, assured, big room of people who know their rights and know what this is all about. They know what the stakes are. Mm -hmm. So something is, and that was just this past week. So we know that workers are building strength and we know that the company is feeling scared. I want to ask you about this year's Google shareholder meeting. What happened there? Yeah, um, the shareholder meeting was this past summer. And, you know, I, I guess I could rewind a little bit and say that for the past few shareholder meetings, there has been a collaboration between more activist shareholder groups and workers at Google, right? So it started with um, a couple years ago, maybe one activist shareholder proposal was read out loud in the shareholder meeting. Mm -hmm. This year, we had five. Mm -hmm. This year, there were shareholder proposals read out loud inside the meeting by Google employees, like staring down our senior executives, Larry, Sergey, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that cast of characters listened to employees talk about forced arbitration, talk about the lack of affordable housing in the Bay Area, talk about um, you know surveillance technology that Google has been building, Project Dragonfly. So there were not only employees speaking truth to power inside the room, you know, at, at great risk, you know, <laughs> bravely, but we also had a march outside the shareholder meeting that I, I heard that they could hear on the inside, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it was a march of Google workers, so engineers, data scientists, I was out there, and service workers, so Google janitors, Google cafeteria workers, this kind of cross-tech solidarity, you don't, you don't see that every day. It was a historic moment. Mm. Um, community organizations were there, Silicon Valley Rising um, repped and had really cool signs. So it was an exciting moment where service workers and full-timers at Google have been told not to talk to each other. They like service workers actually get orders not to talk to us because we we don't like them. We won't 
enjoy talking with them. We're the customer. Yeah, people who are, who are behind the counter, maybe serving yeah. food or yeah, doing janitorial exactly. work. You're supposed to do it, do it silently. So, right. And that's, it's, I, I, I think through these actions, we realize that that tension and that conflict is completely manufactured. And it's intentional. What would you say the culture is right now at Google? And I I think that's a hard thing to answer with a company that big. But from your take, what is the culture like in the, in the place that you sit? I think the culture has completely changed. People I talk, I mean, just a couple days ago, a friend of mine who is one of the sweetest people, really shy, she came to me. And she said, hey, there's there's an all-hands meeting coming up, and I want to brainstorm with you about how we can use that all-hands meeting to ask pointed questions or to get issues on the table in front of that whole audience to shake things up, to speak truth to power. She came to me with that idea and feeling like she wanted to, to do something, right? And that... That That is what it's all about for me, that people at Google, we have to stop being a passive subject of our circumstances and start being an active agent in the way that we can. And we also, I, I, I'll, I'll say that we also know that going through the, the normal channels that the company tells us to, going through HR to file our complaints, going through the, the existing management chains, we know from years of experience and from sharing our stories that that doesn't work anymore. We know that our first instinct now is to talk to our coworkers, get a sanity check, get a group together, and then decide what to do collectively. Because, you know, that's the only thing that has that has ever worked in uh, in history. So not, not just in, in Google talking about the walkout, but in in history, the only thing that has worked has been to band together. Thank you to Erica for conducting that interview. You'll hear more from Stephanie later in today's show when we talk about contractors. First, though, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back after this to talk to two more organizers, Claire Stapleton and Meredith Whitaker, about why they did leave Google after last year's walkout. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Rico Decode, and on today's special episode, we're talking about tech and labor because it's been just over a year since 20,000 workers walked out at Google. 
Some of them went even further than that, though. I recently sat down with Eric Anderson, Meredith Whitaker, and Claire Stapleton to talk about why all three of them no longer work at Google and the pressures they faced while they were agitating against the company from the inside. Claire, Meredith, and Erica, welcome to Recode Decode. So we're back again because we want an update of what's been going on, and actually quite a lot has gone on. Um, and so I want you guys to go through it. All three of you do not work for Google anymore, correct? That's right. Yep. All right. We're going to talk about why that is and what happened. So, Meredith, why don't we start with you? Sort of give everyone sort of a lay of the land of at where it was a year ago when you were coming to talk. So a year ago, we were coming down from the big rush of the walkout and sort of thinking about the future of organizing at Google and in tech um, there was sort of a you know a hopeful vibe around that, which I would say it's still present for a lot of the organizing. But um, it was very clear that shortly after the walkout, Google, you know, began to um, take measures to try to suppress some of the organizing. And one of the things that people don't know about Google and a lot of the internet companies is they have enormous amounts of communication going on among and between employees and everyone else, either via. Uh, weekly meetings, uh, the TGIF meetings, which are, are sometimes can get very vocal. Then there's a lot of there's meme gen. There's all kinds of ways to communicate. But how is this different from your? Because they talk a lot at Google. People do, and it's usually about the the state of the the stake or something like that, or some complaint about some development of a product. Yeah, they will rabbit hole on sort of not having enough tea in the micro kitchen. Like anything mm-hmm. can be blown into a you know sent a thread debate on a mailing list. <laughs> um, but I think what we were seeing here is a really stark distinction between having voice and being able to express your opinions and concerns and feelings about the company and actually having power, Mm -hmm. right? And I think for a while that had been conflated. People thought that since we had all of these platforms to communicate, since the company is very online, that, you know, that somehow was giving them agency to actually change and make decisions. Right. And what we saw you know, around the walkout was that there is, you know, it is very clear that something is very wrong. And, you know, as these stories came in, as we heard stories of harassment and discrimination, you know, it started to uncover sort of patterns of discrimination. Oh, half the work, over half the workforce are sort of, you know, precarious contractors who don't get the benefits that everyone gets. There are sort of offsite contractors that, you know, sort of work in extremely brutal conditions that are not accounted for within the sort of engineering-based mythology of this sort of college campus, right? So Mm -hmm. it it uncovered a counter-narrative, and as people started talking about that, it was very clear that we needed more than a, you know, a new story, we actually needed to figure out how to how to build the power mm-hmm. to change that system. And that was, I think the walkout was kind of a, a really generative moment where we saw this right. possibility for worker power. Claire, you and Meredith have both talked publicly about the retaliation you said you received from Google management. Talk about what happened to you. Okay, so around the time of the walkout, people were saying to us, you know, you should learn about retaliation and consult lawyers. Uh, now you guys are out there, face of the company, activists. And I was so brand new to it, so naive, really, mm-hmm. as I look back on it, that I really thought of the walkout as this togetherness moment, not mm-hmm. a divisive moment. And Ruth, Ruth Porat was at a conference the next week saying that, you know, if only Wall Street had a culture like Google, maybe the world would be a very different place. she was using it, yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, and I had been on my team. Ruth Porat 11, is the CFO of, CFO, of right. Alphabet, too, I think. Yes, one Google. of the, I don't know, the big um, executives. So I, I had been at Google. 11 years at this point, I'm saying, I mean, no way is anything going to happen to me. I am so set up on this team. I have a little team. You know, I'm great performance. What did you specialize in? 
Um, I worked on the YouTube marketing team, and I ran our social media. Social media for all of Google or just YouTube? Or just YouTube, yeah. yeah. Boy, aren't you glad you got out now, but go ahead. I know. There's another promoting PewDiePie again. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so gross. The compass in the spine, it shocks yeah. me. Yeah. Um, okay, so I uh, I got back from the holidays in January. Yeah, yeah. I just w- dove right back in, actually, after work. Right. It was like it was like not even a conversation about the mm-hmm. walkout. Um, Did you I, ever have a conversation with your bosses about it when it was happening? Yes, um, they were supportive. I mean, it, this is we're talking all female team, no harassment issues on the team, all the way up to Susan, all the way up to Lorraine Tuhill. I mean, this is every manager Susan was Wichesky, a woman who's head of YouTube. Yeah, so I, I Lorraine Tuhill is the head of marketing. Head of marketing yeah. yeah. So okay. So I again, I'm feeling great. I actually feel that these people were giving me a golf clap around mm-hmm. the office for this. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I come back from the holidays and I have a conversation with my manager that was so brazen. It was of such a brazen demotion that I ha- I thought that I must be mistaken. Mm-hmm. That there must be something else going on. So she basically said with almost no rationale, which still I have you know, it's like I have to go to therapy to parse what happened mm-hmm. here. It's like she was so she split my my little team in two. Mm-hmm. And then she told me she was hiring someone above me. We had sort of built this team together, actually, my manager and I. Um, and for people who intimately know the dynamic between the two of us, it's even more shocking that mm-hmm. they would be. I would be layered in and all this. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately fought back, but in, in a you know manager to report way. I would, wanted to know the rationale. I wanted to know what this new operational plan was going to look like. What was I supposed to be focusing on? And she basically said, I'd like you to focus on promoting YouTube kids and YouTube originals. These are like the hot potato things nobody wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, why? I mean, where's this coming from? And she mm-hmm. said, well, you know, I figured YouTube kids, you'd be interested in that, you know, because of women's issues. What? <laughs> and, then what? She, and then the icing, icing on the cake because of your work on the walkout. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, what? This is, I mean, it, I, you know, most generously, this is an unbelievably botched communication. Least generously, this is outright retaliation coming from somewhere else that's mm-hmm. outside of this room. And so I dutifully, ever the corporate citizen, escalated this just as you're supposed to. I mean, it's like the whistleblower. whistleblower yeah. You know all about the <laughs> right. whistleblower. So, so I'm like, okay, so what's the current HR? I've never filed anything with HR before. So I'm like, okay, where is the HR here? Where is um, the department? Where is the department? Okay, so the, now I learned that they don't have HR anymore if you're below director level. So I file a ticket Wait, in the what? system. What do you mean? Yeah, so they only have, <laughs> they only have you know, HR business support for executives, essentially. So what, yeah. if, if you're a rank and file, uh, as I was, you know, a, you do a manager, a you, you send to a form, you go to, you get sent to a call center. So I had a, a very nice young man who tells me, he's not, no, no institutional power at all, that I should just focus on, you know, structuring my one-on-ones with my manager for optimal communication. Maybe I should take her out, you know, to do something together, get a drink. I mean, it was like, we weren't in the same office. So I was just like, what is going on here? I'm raising a retaliation claim. And they're telling me I need to like, you know, cozy up to my manager. It was like, mm-hmm. we couldn't, never the twain shall meet. So it, my story just so sort you of— you called this person, you did the form, and then what? Nothing. What? I'm just sitting there like just nothing's like changing. like Twitter request for harassment, but go ahead. Exactly. And um, meanwhile, I'm— hitting a loggerhead with my manager because she starts, I think that because, this is human nature coming in here, she's just, this, she's she doesn't know how to resolve this, so she starts routing my work to other people. So I'm effectively already demoted. I'm like, you know, it's hanging in space. So the uh, the next catalyzing force was that we did this New York Magazine article where I mentioned 
uh, Google Creative Lab where I said I, I, I had my eyes open to what all the women were talking about during the walkout because I was in this really sexist environment. Mm-hmm. And it was a sort of a— Explain an example of sexist from, that you experienced. Um, I, so I had started on the same day at, in, as a copywriter in this department as a male contractor. And the male contractor had come from Wyden and Kennedy and was a, was a buddy, was a boy of the creative director that we were both working for. I could not get put on a project. I, you know, I was like weeks and months went by. They were, I was sort of like going around cup in hand trying to get projects. Whereas this guy was, this other guy I was sitting next to was overloaded with projects. And I asked another guy in the department, it was sort of a senior designer, um, what can I do to get this creative director to give me more work, to put me in, coach, or whatever mm-hmm. the, you know, <laughs> trying to use a sports analogy. Don't. And he said, well, you know him, he's like a total guys guy. You know, he likes to kind of work with the kind of guy you can get a beer with after work. Like this other guy, you know, they used to do the ESPN spots together, you know, at Wyden yeah. or whatever. And I'm like, what? Um, but of course, I didn't completely internalize this as my failure. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm just not a culture fit or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, it was just, and then of, like so after. You saw, I, so you mentioned this in the New York. Maybe. I mentioned this. And then because of that, um, HR took notice and they sent a senior HR person to speak to me about the creative lab issue, actually. But I was like, great. Well, while I have your ear, I'm dealing with this retaliation stuff right now. You know, it'd been like two months uh-huh. or something. And so I lay out my whole story to this woman. She was a total pro. And she said, it is so important, you know, for people to hold up a mirror to this organization and make it better, make it stronger Mm -hmm. and all this. Meanwhile, all the women in Creative Lab are reaching out to me saying, thank you so much for saying this, you know, because we're all like contractors here, like, you know, um, languishing here with no power. Anyway, so she says, I've set you up to talk to someone tomorrow with a couple solutions. I think I know what's going to work here. And I'm thinking, great, they're going to like, you know, give me a project somewhere. They're going to resolve this. They're going to undo everything. And um, I meet with this woman in benefits who basically starts walking me through how leaves work. Here's how medical leave works. Here's how sabbaticals work. Here's how uh, caregivers leave works. And I'm like, this is a misunderstanding, clearly, because, you know, I'm raising a retaliation claim here. I don't need to learn how to take vacation. Mm -hmm. And so I go back to the HR person. I say, what's, can you help me understand what's going on here? And she said, she gives me the spiel about how, you know, there are times in life where we all need to take a pause and a breath and, what? you know, yeah. And I'm thinking... You didn't ask for one. Of course. And I said, I don't even have a doctor right now other than my, you know, OB and I haven't, you know, gave birth two years ago. And she said, oh, I can help you find a doctor, no problem, sign the paperwork. I mean, this is like basically you're declaring yourself unable to work. And at that point... But you weren't. I wasn't. And, you know, at that point, as I started talking about it, because I was so frustrated, I was, you know, speaking this truth to not only other organizers experiencing stuff, but just, you know, other people in the company. And I saw, and I heard so many stories of people being pushed on medical leave, which you can see how it works because you, if you're raising— yeah, you're a, taking the vapors. You, you, mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're, you're basically—you're um, adopting a storyline that's very convenient to them, which is that you're the one who's actually— Creating the problem. There was nothing wrong with you at this time. You were just well. Sure, I was stressed out, but I mean, I, yeah. w- I wanted resolution and I wanted right. I wanted an intervention. Well, you stressed out because of the work situation, not because of any medical right. Issues. No. So, all right. So, Meredith, they sidelined you. They essentially said you couldn't do, and so you just said, "I'm going." There was no fighting it. Well, we did fight it, yeah. and we fought it by sort of telling these stories. Yes, of course. Because obviously, you know, this type of retaliation isn't unique simply to people who have sort of a high profile as an organizer. It's mm-hmm. something that, you know, Everybody. people who report, you know, inequity or sexual harassment or other mistreatment also experience. And it's sort of a key to a lot of these issues because if the people who are trying to change the company or change the direction 
are pushed out. There's no, you know, you can say well, me too, but if you get sort of thrown overboard after you say it, you're not actually looking at something that is is changing anything. So talk, so. talk about you were leaving. So then you were doing this and then... Yeah, so so Claire and I wrote They didn't out, decide you were sick or they didn't offer you a medical they, leave, right? They didn't. They sort of, you know, they recognizing that I had really significant commitments that mm-hmm. I could not responsibly simply like jettison they sort of forced me into a position where I was Choice. either going to have to sort of irresponsibly leave those commitments by the wayside or or leave at AI now. Yeah. And during this process, I'm being told things like, you know, you're going to have to be pushed out of Google Cloud because Google Cloud wants to be everywhere Lockheed is. And I had been extremely vocal around the Maven project and around the sort of building. This is Defense Department work. Defense Department work and, and building AI for systems weaponry. for weaponry that, you know, anyone who knows these sort of AI and machine learning systems knows they don't work to the standards that are being claimed, mm-hmm. knows that these are incredibly dangerous, they're automating an illegal war, and that there's no, you know, we're not having these discussions. We don't have experts in the room. There's no one who is sort of holding anyone accountable for the actual harms that are going to be caused here. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at sort of Google has a system where these deals are being inked where it's, you know, it's all trade secret. You don't even, mm-hmm. you know, there are many deals we probably don't know about that right. are happening. So you didn't want to work on these. So they said, oh, yeah. now you can't work on our Lockheed or whatever yeah. we're going to do. I mean, I can't be making my name as someone who talks about, like, the right. social implications and ethics and then mm-hmm. be just basically a smokescreen for, like, some extraordinarily troubling developments where mm-hmm. the company with a wealth of the most intimate information about everyone and massive infrastructural power around the world is like making decisions about whether we automate weapons. Like that's a pretty bright line. Yeah. And so you couldn't work on those. So explain what happened then. So I was speaking up about those or, and, you know, asking basic questions and sort of connecting the workplace inequity. Like, you know, it looks like the same kinds of people are being discriminated inside the company as are bearing the most risk and harm from the technologies that are being shipped outside the company. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, you know, it basically escalated to kind of a series of conversations. And I had pretty good hygiene at this point. I was taking mm-hmm. notes of every mm-hmm. conversation with my manager. I was sending those notes out to a group of people so that there was like contemporaneous evidence of each mm-hmm. one of these conversations, which anyone who is organizing should be doing because mm-hmm. that'll really help you when you start to piece together these cases. Mm-hmm. It was basically I was being pushed out and they never said it was because of organizing, but there was a meeting that happened where HR was brought in where that was like the like lay the gauntlet down you're either going to take this job or not. You know, I immediately said, you know, I need a lawyer. I'm not having this conversation without a lawyer. I started pushing everything through my lawyer. And then I was talking with Claire, and we recognized that this is, you know, this is something that needed to sort of be in the open, that we are not the only people who are being retaliated against and a company that sort of attacks the, you know, it's sort of like like a misfiring antivirus, right, that's mm-hmm. attacking, like, the people who are trying to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, heal it needs to be called out. So we told our stories. We held a town hall where others who'd been retaliated against, you know, spoke about their stories. There were people who talked about having to go on increasing doses of, you know, mental health medication because of the stress. There were people who sort of broke down and cried because they were like, I didn't, until I heard other people talking about this, I didn't realize how much gaslighting I'd been subjected to. I didn't realize why people suddenly started giving me the cold shoulder, suddenly started sort of ignoring me, why I was suddenly being told I'm not good when before I'd been great. And so, like, the psychological damage that happens, because, of course, a company is never going to say we're retaliating against you. So what they do is they just begin to sort of, like, gaslight you. You begin to have horrifying social interactions. People are, like, mean or weird or cold and suddenly there was this sort of room where everyone is acknowledging this and like speaking it and it was 
it was very difficult, right? It was clear that that was also kind of a catalytic moment where mm-hmm. people were beginning to recognize, like, okay, here is a pattern, and let's think about ways we right. can, you know, protect each other, we can organize together, we can talk to each other, and we can begin to think about ways to push back against this pattern. So now there is a, there's a group of people at Google who are sort of an, a worker-run alternative HR which right. is just a group that's going to, like, if you're experiencing these issues... So they're orga- self-organizing. Self-organizing. And, you left. Yeah. You left. I left, yeah. Because, um, and you can you talk about the terms? Um, I can't talk about all the details, mm-hmm. but I left. It was a long slog, but I would say that ultimately it was just diminishing returns, right? There were people who were picking up the mantle across the company. Like, every big office now has an organizing meeting. They're sort of, you know, across tech. This movement has sort of mushroomed everywhere. All right, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Now, yeah. how did you leave, Claire? So um, basically what happened to me was uh, I w- you know, was in this miserable work environment for a couple of months and found out I was pregnant, surprise. Um, and so Meredith and I also knew that there were other organizers to whom this was happening. Um, retaliation, obviously, a huge theme going on in the story bank and otherwise. So I joined the call to fight back and told my story. When I did that, it really unleashed hell in my department. So promptly, I think it was a day or two later, the head of my department, as well as Lorraine, the CMO of Google, sent emails to the entire marketing mailing list. So this is, I think, something close to 10,000 people, basically saying I'd made the whole thing up, which was shocking. I think um, the head of my department um, had written an email saying that, you know, she's a leader of diversity and inclusion and has, you know, fought for women's rights in her career. Uh, Lorraine said that, you know, she'd spent weeks trying to understand and talking to everyone to empathize, you know, with the situation. We never spoke about this. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm confused as to, you know, who, what story she was piecing together, um, as well as the stunning hypocrisy here that this is a, a department of women talking about how much they've championed these issues. And yet their first instinct when I spoke my truth was to say this person's lying. Mm-hmm. And so it created a completely untenable and toxic work environment for me. I was coming into work and people were like, what, you're still here? Unable to do my job, unable to transfer effectively because now I've been called a liar mm-hmm. uh, by the most respected person in the department. So, yeah, so that was... And did you ever just, have a meeting with her about this to no. face... No. She never... She just did this without meeting with you. Yeah. So what did you do? So... Yeah, then it became a kind of legal conversation. And, you know, I, I think I was sort of making a, a calculation of do I stick it out, kind of to stick it to them to continue to push this company to mm-hmm. its ideals and its values? Or do I say um, I'm having a baby and, you know, I'd, I'd like a, you know, a bit more mental health space here? I probably right. should have taken that medical leave. <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't have. Absolutely. All right. So what now? What happens now? All three of you are outside the company. There are still people inside of it. Um, Cecilia's inside, right? And no, she left. She, oh, she, she went left to Pinterest. Went to Pinterest. And then Stephanie's still there. And Amr? Stephanie and Amr are still there. I think, you know, for the next part of this podcast, we are going to talk about kind of the passing of the torch. Yeah, so what happens now? We've seen a lot of organizing outside of the company. You know, Amazon with their climate walkout. Um, You know, Uber, Riders United. There's a lot of different groups popping up in Silicon Valley that are organizing people. And so we'll hear more about that. But it's, it to me seems a bit like the passing of the torch. Like even though a lot of us are gone, there's a lot still happening. What I think is is really interesting about the movement is that it brings together workplace issues as well as ethical issues. So the the week that I left, there was a an amazing effort called Ban Google from Pride, and it, this is this was Google speaking out against uh, anti LGBTQ policies on mm-hmm. YouTube. Similarly, a couple weeks after we left, a woman released a memo to the company, which ended up leaking about 
a torrent of discrimination she'd faced, which started with her sticking up for another pregnant woman, that she herself was sort of railroaded, told to leave, and ended up leaving. Um, so I think that the fact that people are inspired to both share their stories as well as galvanize to speak out when they see something that they think is fundamentally wrong, I, I really believe that the people who are organizing and, you know, us and what have you, we're on the right side of this. And I think that what the walkout did was made the line really clear. There was this kumbaya moment with executives around the time of the walkout where we all were talking about how this was just a different strain of Google idolism. And now it's clear that um, the employees are going to have to hold the management to account because they're not going to do it willingly. Thank you, Claire and Meredith and Eric. I know where to find you, but where can people find you all online? I am at the AI Now Institute at NYU and I'm on Twitter. I'm Twitter um, at Claire Waves. All right, Claire. I love your <laughs> tweets, so they're very funny. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We're going to take another break now, but when we return, I'm going to pass the mic back to Eric Anderson, who's going to lead the conversation about contractors in tech, back after this. This is Recode Decode. I'm Kara Swisher. We want to finish today's show by focusing in on one of the issues that motivated many of the Google walkout organizers, and that's the treatment of contractors. As Shireen mentioned, Google calls these workers TVCs, and they make up a majority of workers at the company and could be doing anything from cooking food to writing code without the same benefits as full-time employees. As you probably know, this is not just a Google thing. Your Uber and Lyft drivers are contractors. So are the people who bring you food from delivery apps like Seamless and DoorDash. But it's even bigger than that, and our final guests are going to help us understand just how big. Take it away, Erica. Thanks, Kara. I'm joined now by three people who are trying to raise awareness about the shadow, quote-unquote, shadow workforce. First is Stephanie Parker, who you heard earlier in the show. She's a policy specialist at Google and was one of the walkout organizers last year. Joining me from Pittsburgh is Ben Gwynn, who works on the Google Shopping product and led an effort to unionize Google's contractors in his office. And we're also lucky to be joined by Nicole Moore. She's a part-time Lyft driver in Los Angeles, who's also an organizer with a group called Rideshare Drivers United. Stephanie, Ben, and Nicole, welcome to Recode Decode. Nicole, I want to start with you. Your group, Rideshare Drivers United, has been making the case that drivers for Uber and Lyft aren't getting paid as fairly as they should be. And you are one of the Los Angeles organizers for a driver strike, which happened back in May. What has happened since then? We're continuing to fight uh, for being classified as employees. We won a big victory in the state of California in the last month where um, the state has um, passed a law that says, indeed, if these are your conditions of work, you actually are an employee mm -hmm. and can get basic labor standards. So um, our challenge is to organize um, a very broad net of drivers who aren't necessarily connected to anything except our phones mm -hmm. and our app. And um, that's what we're doing right now is building, uh, we're building a union um, to fight for fair wages. Um, when, you know, so some of our colleagues are, you know, they've, we've invested so much in the company with our cars and I mean, they don't have a fleet. We are their fleet. We own the fleet. Right. As these wages go down and down, we're stuck. And, you know, m most of us are um, housing insecure, and a few of us are homeless. And this mm -hmm. is just the direction that the industry is going. And it has, we have to put—the only people to put a stop to it are us. We'll go back to that, Nicole. There's so much in there about 
the gig economy and the the structure of workforce policies and social safety nets that were set up for a different generation of workers before the gig economy really exploded. But really quickly, for Rideshare United, how many members do you have and what's the geographic span? So we really got started in L.A., so that's where our strength is. And we have over 5,000 drivers uh, connected to Rideshare Drivers United here in L.A. But we're building chapters across the state and across the country. We have kind of a hybrid organizing model. We um, figured out kind of a homegrown uh, tech piece to help us stay connected as driver organizers with people that were helping to get involved in the movement. and um, But we're really building, um, you know, face-to-face um, strong relationships, driver-to-driver, to make sure that, you know, we're, we're actually connected to each other. Mm-hmm. The most difficult um, thing for us is not being connected. And, it's, you know, it's the ace in the hole for Lyft and Uber who hope to keep us very isolated, and, and it's not going to happen. Now, let's go to the other side of the country and to Ben Gwynn in Pittsburgh. Ben, you're a permanent employee at a company called HCL, but through them, you're a contractor at Google. And just recently, you and about 80 coworkers voted to unionize with the United Steel Workers. How did that happen? Um, wow. Well, yeah, I could, I could go on about that. <sighs> Basically, um, you know, we are underpaid and we don't get enough time off, among other complaints. So, um, a couple of us reached out to USW um, almost a year ago and, you know, just started talking to the workforce and we got enough support that, um, you know, we were able to bring it to a vote. There's, I think, a popular perception or assumption that if you're working at a company like Google, you're getting paid super well. Could you explain the differences between what a full-time Google employee is making and what it's like for you as a contractor? It's not just that we're, you know, underpaid. It's just that, like, some people, you know, in the last couple of years started at, like, 35000 and some people doing the same work are making almost seventy. So there's just, like, a huge parity um, that's just sort of, like... Um, you know, arbitrarily assigned starting salaries based on some people being grandfathered in from old contractors. Um, So it's just, there's not really like any kind of transparency about why people make what they make or what you need to do to get a raise. Um, Our raises don't keep up with inflation. That's another big thing. Can you explain the differences between what a full Google employee is making and what it's like for you as a contractor? Um, Yeah, I mean, we don't don't get sick days. We don't have any paid sick leave. We get 10 days of vacation, but we have to accrue it all. Uh, There are days where the office isn't open that we have to use our PTO, and that doesn't seem very fair to me. Speaking of pay disparity, Nicole, could you elaborate some more on the differences between what a driver for Lyft used to be able to make and what they make now? And how does the AB5 law that takes effect next year, how does that play into this? The wages have shrunk so enormously that people are saying, hey, I had a really good day. You know, I made $270. Well, how many hours did you work? 14. You know, um, and, and that's all that people make, $270 or 
you know, I had somebody talking to me the other day, you know, I put six hours in this morning, I brought back 40. And this is not the same experience that passengers are having. You know, it used to be that our pay was hooked to what the passengers pay, right? When I started with Lyft, I was guaranteed 80% of the passenger fare. Mm. Well, they, they quickly undid that shortly after I joined, and it became, you know, straight mileage and time, while passengers continue to have surges and prime time and all those other things where there's high demand. So, you know, um, you know, a normal ride from, say, Pasadena to the LAX, you know, could be $50 um, in a low demand time. And I'll get maybe 25 or 30 of that $50. Um, but on a high, high demand time, maybe LAX to Pasadena, passengers might pay as much as 150 And I still get 25 to $30, maybe 35 because I get a little $4 bonus because it's high demand. You know, and so, you know, one of the things that we're excited about is that, you know, once we establish that we are employees, which, you know, the law is supposed to take effect um, January 1, we at least receive, will, you know, are legally supposed to receive minimum wage plus expenses, right? Um, we estimate that it, that will be $15 plus $15 for our expenses, right? And that's really the cost, right? And that's just a floor. So we're excited about that. But, you know, the companies have dug in and said, you know what? We're not going to follow the law. And, you know, if you make us follow the law, we're going to put a ballot on, you know, we're going to put an initiative on the ballot that will undo this law Mm -hmm. and carve out Lyft and Uber drivers so we don't have to follow basic labor standards in our country. Um, So, I mean, we're in a very terrible situation. We have these, you know, huge companies that are making hand over fist money. We know that we're the, you know, the little people in this equation, but we're bringing in, you know, tens of millions of dollars on a daily basis for these companies while we're barely able to pay the bills to keep a roof over our head and food on the table. What I'm hearing is that it's not just compensation for any of you. It's a range of issues. And Stephanie, as you and I both know, there were several different demands being made by the walkout organizers last year. Talk a bit more about what happened after the walkout at Google and how that connects to this larger contractor question. Like right away after the walkout, we got forced arbitration removed for Google full-time employees. We're still working on it for contractors and for uh, employees of the bets. But one thing I'm super excited about is that through continued sustained pressure on the company, we were able to get them to establish new minimum wage and healthcare standards for contractors for the first time ever. That was in response to pressure internally, from not from the goodness of their hearts. Um, <laughs> this was people raising questions week after week, sending emails on the big lists, like just applying pressure from many different directions. Ben, Stephanie made the point that a lot of the time, these things are a battle that workers don't get concessions from their bosses out of the goodness of their heart. How has management responded to your union drive? Well, I think the best thing we did was not let management didn't find out until we filed with the NLRB. Um, So we caught them off guard. We were like super quiet about it, um, which was really important. You know, I believe in organized labor. I believe in, in unions. I think the decrease in union membership in this country is a big reason why there's such an income disparity right now. 
And it means a lot to me to be able to be a part of hopefully trying to revive that. You know, and it's it's Pittsburgh, so being able to be a part of USW is is awesome. But I think um, you know we want we want a new contract, and you know across the board, my coworkers, you know we've tried to go to management with problems, you know to get raises, to get you know more time off, whatever. And there's just no way to improve our conditions alone. So collective bargaining seemed like the best way to go to me. Um, and hopefully we can affect the lasting change uh, by doing that. Mm-hmm. Was Google management supportive? Like, did you do any organizing uh, oh, no, at the office? Oh, no, they not supportive at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, Google, Google stayed out of it, but, um, you know, HCL brought in union busters, and they did, you know, captive audience meetings and, um, you know, all kinds of, like, thinly veiled threats and traditional union busting garbage. Um and, you know, luckily, pretty much everyone saw through it, right? Um, when you say union we, busting, you mean, like, they brought someone in to, like, tell you why? Like, what, is that, what does that mean, actually? So they, they kind of framed it as, like, this is a third-party consultant that will just give you some facts because you're only hearing from the union people right now. Um, and they brought in the guy who um, was on American Factory. So this, is, this, is the, this guy was in this <laughs> Netflix documentary who successfully did undermine the unionization efforts at Fuyaho Glass in Dayton, I think it was, somewhere in Ohio. Um, so that the timing of that actually worked kind of well for us that this, this guy is on TV, like, telling people how bad unions are, and management's framing him as, like, an independent, you know, neutral third party. So, you know, he basically said, kind of walking the legal line of what you're allowed to say, just like, oh, you don't know if you'll even get anything if you go to bargaining or if you ask for too much money, then, you know, you're going to bankrupt the company and they won't be able to pay you and they'll ship your jobs, you know, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of like contradictory stuff, too. And um, the other thing that we did that was advantageous to us is we didn't file cards until we got a super majority of support from the biggest possible bargaining unit. So we knew that you know, two-thirds of the workforce wanted this, and we, you know, figured if they brought in union busters, we would probably lose a few people. But um, we won the vote two to one, even after this guy was, like, you know, letting people come in on work time to listen to a spiel about how, you know, the union was going to ruin everything for everyone. Mm -hmm. Nicole, I want to finish with you. I was reading something that my colleague Shireen had written. She's done a ton of reporting on the gig economy for Vox and Recode. And she covered the day of action, which was right before the Uber IPO. There was um, a protest, a a strike of Uber drivers. I think it was in eight cities. And Nicole, you were fundamental in organizing that. And I think the um, S1 that Uber had filed for their IPO said, quote, um, as we aim to reduce driver incentives to improve our financial performance, we expect driver dissatisfaction will generally increase, end quote. And that, that was from the S1. And just, I want to talk a bit about this, like, enormous wealth that's being created and then the great disparity in the lived experiences of so many of the workers. And Nicole, what is your end game? I know there's legislation in California. Um, where would you like to be a year from now? 
What is your ideal scenario? I want to say that there were at least 14 U.S. cities and cities across the world um, where Lyft and Uber drivers took action in the street on May 8th. And it was an incredible moment of solidarity. You know, and I think we did change the the conversation because two days later, it was not just in the S1, but the unicorn conversation about whether we should invest in these kind of groovy new tech companies also um, came, groovy new tech companies, should we invest? You know, they really exploit their drivers. And that change in the conversation has been really important. Um, And I think what is exciting to me is that here we are in this moment. I, I, you know, hearing uh, Stephanie's story about the inside Google, I mean, everything that we read about that, um, you know, that we got, uh, you know, over online or whatever about what happened at Google was extremely um, empowering and exciting to us. Um, You know, hearing about the work that you're doing, Ben, has been exciting to us. Um, You know, we hear sometimes from engineers at Lyft and Uber, you know, who sit in our back seats and um, say, yeah, it's really messed up the algorithms that we're writing that, you know, are trying to basically exploit you. I don't know how much longer I'll be able to do this. That cross, um, you know, tech solidarity that's happening right now um, is really important because ultimately, you know, these are the jobs that are going to make our future or break our future. I mean, I look at my kid now um, who's 11 years old and everybody's like, oh, yeah, like you should go to coding school. And I'm like, if she goes to coding school, what kind of job does she really have in her future? You know, I mean, <laughs> is that really going to help um, her future uh, based on the direction that uh, it's going right now um, in tech, unless we figure out how to, um, you know, to tackle the disparity that's being created in these companies where, you know, all of my car and maintenance is uh, resulting in 20 or 30 percent of a passenger fare and the rest of it goes to um, somebody's $71 million home um, in the same city that I live in. These are the kinds of things that we have to tackle. There is no reason in the world why tech leaders can't become millionaires. Um, That's not a problem. But the American promise has been that if you're going to do that, if you're going to create millions, you have to share that with uh, the people who work for your company. And you can't hide behind the fact that the drivers are independent contractors. You can't hide behind the fact that, well, these aren't really Google employees. They're they're working for, you know, another company, um, you know, and they're just contracting with us. You can't hide your wealth in that. You have to share it. I mean, that's how you create a, a good society where, you know, our American dream that we're going to do better for our kids than we did for ourselves, that's not attainable right now based on, you know, what's going on. And so the fact that tech is reaching across, you know, whatever our job classification 
organizations wherever we sit in this pyramid of tech jobs. Uh, the fact that we're um, we're kind of on the same page and we're working with each other and we're talking to each other. This is really important. What has to happen is like since all of us use tech, we have to also as consumers of tech say, hey, this isn't right. And I'm in solidarity with my uh, Lyft driver today or, you know, I know all the people behind, um, you know, my purchase on, you know, the Google app. And I'm really, you know, this is important to me that these companies not exploit this workforce. For those of us who have listened to you know stories about unions and stories about labor and this and that, you know, and you know, it might sound trite to say stuff about exploitation, but it is so real. I mean, it's ridiculous when you share a desk with somebody who's doing the exact same job as you and they're making twice the income that you're making. What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture when I can look at my app and see that tonight I made $120 and Lyft made $130? What's wrong with this picture? We have to say enough, right? And the way to do that is, I, I mean, I love that, you know, um, that Stephanie, your, you know, your coworkers came together just and said, we're just going to be a force. We're just going to be people coming together and making this happen. I mean, you know, that's not what it, our experience of unionism is, that these established unions with, you know, the same color t-shirts and whatever else. It's a different thing, but it's the same concept. I mean, that's what we as drivers did, and we're building our own union. And it's really the new labor movement. This is a labor movement that's not about paying your dues so that if you get in trouble, you have somebody to bail you out and who's negotiating your contract. We're doing this on our own, you know, and you're you guys are doing it in that way, but you're building it. I know it's not just like paying your dues. Thank you again to everyone who appeared on today's show. Stephanie Parker, Nicole Moore, Ben Gwynn, Meredith Whitaker, Claire Stapleton, Shireen Ghaffari, and of course, Erica Anderson. Good to be here, Kara. Well, thank you for taking over the mic. <laughs> I'm always happy to. You, the question you have, is, you have are, big shoes to fill. are you happier at Google or here? Oh, Kara, the answer is so obvious. <laughs> here. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. You can follow Eric at, at Erica America. And our producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Contagious Music in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Network Studios in Culver City, California, and Clear Lake Recording in North Hollywood. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rico Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. <laughs>